the word story and the word storytelling kind of gets bantied about a great deal. And so even in a crisis, there is room to tell the story. That doesn't mean make up things, lie or be deceitful. But there is a narrative, there is an arc of the way people can onboard and accept information. And if the media is running with a narrative, we have to tell a counter narrative. We have to tell an alternative story that is based on fact, based on realities that most people might not be aware of. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now I'm sure we've all had days where it feels like we do nothing but fight fires, nothing but intensely analyse, inspect and wrestle with problems big and small, that at times feel like the sheer volume of them might just crush us or our organisation entirely. Now, I can, I can definitely tell you from my own days of feeling like that, that the last thing I ever felt like I had was a clear idea of how to address those issues in a manner where everyone wins, a blueprint to work from that would guarantee, perhaps not guarantee, but move me towards the best possible outcome every time. In fact, most of the time, it just felt like I was going frantically from one fire to the next, getting one under control, and then just moving on to whichever one presented itself to me after that. So I want you to imagine if every day was one of those days. Every day was a fighting fire day. If every day your job was to tackle some of the biggest crises happening in an organization or in the media and work out how to get through it. Totally my worst nightmare and the reality for my next guest this week. He works alongside CEOs, executives, and organizations in some of their darkest hours, helping them work out exactly what they need to do in the midst of a crisis to come out with their reputations not only intact, but preferably increased. Because that's the opportunity in a crisis, right? If handled well, proactively, and consciously, we can come out with better relationships than we had when we went in. As a reputation management, crisis communications and professional development expert, Bill Coletti knows his way around the most complex and sensitive situations a business can face. Having provided reputation defense to numerous high-profile clients such as AT&T, American Airlines and Xerox, the thing that stood out to me the most about Bill is that he really cares. Now, I know that shouldn't be a surprise, right? And but I'll admit it, the image I had in my mind of a reputation manager before this conversation was something along the Mad Men vibe. Kind of like a spin doctor there to protect those that can pay from the worst of their actions. What I found when I started digging and researching and absolutely in conversation with Bill couldn't have been further from that stereotype. Bill's approach to the people behind these crisis situations is deeply rooted in compassion. For those that have been impacted by the situation, absolutely, but also for those in the midst of the fire, having to make very tough decisions with their entire livelihoods on the line. Some due to their own mistakes and others who just woke up one morning with a raging inferno that they didn't see coming. And that is what elevates Bill to the best in his field. 
Now, as much as I wanted to get into the strategies, techniques and tactics that he's road tested over the years of being on the front line, and we did, most of our conversation today is about people and how to manage the expectations, responses and behavior of people at critical moments. That and many other things we talked about, including crisis EQ, what it is, why it's vital and how, like any other muscle, it takes training. How to get unstuck when a crisis first starts to unfold. You know, when everyone's in fight or flight and you can just feel that panic starting to spread. Why most of us either passively engage or overreact when there's an issue. And how to replace those responses with a process he calls active decision making. The importance of storytelling in controlling a crisis. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll know I'm a freak for storytelling. And this is just yet another example of how epic storytelling can bring people closer together at a time when they are heading further and further apart. A simple three recipe for an effective apology. Clue doesn't involve the words if or but once. And finally, having the courage to speak truth to power. In critical moments, there is often significant fear, not of the situation itself, but of swimming against the tide of of saying something that someone doesn't want to hear. How to overcome those moments and share what you know, even if it's unpopular, constructively. One of the moments I knew that I was going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did was when, in researching Bill's work, I came across his love for a particular quote, which has been one of my lifelong favourites. I'm going to read it to you now. I hope I'm going to do it justice. It goes like this. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. It's by Maya Angelou, who many of you may know. And in critical moments, when the stakes are high and emotions are stretched and every new piece of information feels like a missile, it's easy to forget that it's often not what we do that makes the difference, but how we do it. And that, that is what Bill unpacks. So, sit back, stride out, pull into mind some of the most critical moments you have in your life right now, organisationally, personally, or socially, and how much of an impact it would make if you had a blueprint ready to go. With that in mind, enjoy my conversation with one of the best in the business, Bill Coletti. Welcome to the podcast, Bill Coletti. Hi, it is my pleasure to be here. You're, you're sat in New York right now, I hear. Yes, uh, it's uh, New York City on a, on a very gloomy evening, unfortunately, here uh, in New York. I would, I would put it to you that New York City on a gloomy evening still hands down probably beats most places places. on any day. A lot of places, exactly, exactly. There's always someplace nice to go inside. Now, I want to, I'm going to kick off, I'm going to kick off the way that I, that I always kick off this podcast and, and have done since the very beginning and will do in, until I, I change my mind about it, basically. It's asking the question whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And very quickly, for those that haven't heard me ask that question before, the reason I ask is I feel like there's a myth or a story out there that in order to be influential, especially in what you do in in crisis moments, you need to somehow consider yourself to be an extrovert in order to be effective. And I haven't found it to be true. I still don't find it to be true. And I'm so I'm always asking because it's an ongoing social experiment for me. So for you, introvert or extrovert? 
I am a low E, so I'm a low extrovert. But by perception and and to your to your hypothesis, I'm always perceived to be a high E. But I am a low E. I need quiet time. I need time to reflect and read and and just do my own thing. Um, but so I would I'm I'm right over the edge. So I'm certainly on the E side. But I'm I'm a low E, not a high E. So how does that play out in your in your work? How does that? You know, so it's really nice is that I, I don't have to be the center of attention. I don't demand to be the center of attention in my client engagements. And so it lets me be a better listener. Um, I don't always need to be talking. Um, and it also lets me read. I think too many people talk without reading. And so I literally, it, I enjoy that, the ability to read and research and find things. And so I find, I find benefit in that. So two things, when I listen better, and then I also, I say better things because I try to be a little bit better you know, better read. So it enables you to develop more of a radar, keep more of a radar exactly. on. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the first question I have for you here is actually, it's not directly related to what you do. It's more directly related to my own curiosity. Have you seen, have you seen the Netflix documentary fire about the fire festival? I absolutely have seen the <gasps> Netflix doc- documentary about fire. It's crazy. It is good. For those of you who haven't seen it, watch it. It is directly relational to what you're about to hear over the course of this conversation basically about a festival that was put on it went from bad to worst and they should have called it off many people should have blown the whistle on what was going on people spent tens of thousands of dollars to go and when they ended up arriving rather than these beautiful chalets there were tents there was practically no running water and it's just I think an incredible case study on how to handle things when things start going wrong or when you know you can see a crisis coming what did what was your take on it as someone that works in this field that there was it was a house of cards to begin with and i think that's the major distinction between what i do i i work for major corporations or high profile individuals that have reputations and have durable um status in the marketplace these guys built this thing out of whole cloth and it was it was built on a sort of a, a flawed premise you're right. They should have canceled it. They should have known that it was so bad. But the hubris of one individual decided to make this thing happen at all cost because ego and money intersected and there was really their perception was no way out. Um, but it's a, it's, it is a case study of when you're digging a hole and it keeps getting deeper, you got to stop digging. And so the litigation is starting to run its course on that. So we're going to see how everybody gets sued and, and sort of who, who's left standing at the end of that. But it has been a, it's a case study more about hubris and the arrogance of leadership as opposed to, you know, how to spin your way out of a bad situation. Cause I don't think there was any way to spin themselves out of that. No, I don't, I don't think there was. Was there a moment when, when, cause I was so incredibly uncomfortable watching it. So incredibly uncomfortable. I was, I literally got up and walked around the room in a couple of places. Were you watching it going, I can't believe this is happening? Or were you watching it going, no, I can, I can fully see this happening. This is, this is a process that I often see and I can see where this is going to go. Yeah. And that's unfortunately the latter. It's, it's that I can see where this is going to go. And it was a, you know, I, I, I don't have a fully formed theory on this, but, but, you know, it takes it takes two to tango the dance, but it also takes two to tangle. Uh, and for two people, whether you're in a divorce or whatever the context, you, it takes two people to have conflict with each other. 
it took a willing audience of influencers that wanted to be incredibly special and wanted to be treated to this luxury event and it needed a huckster to set the stage. So it needed both sides for this recipe to work. And so he needed those influencers and those influencers needed the, the venue and the, and the, and the, the guys that were, that were, were putting it on. So it is unfortunate that there have been cases of bad corporations that uh, have been hucksters, but there've been people, help happens a lot in healthcare, there have been people willing to go on the journey with them. Um, hopefully those hucksters get cut off, head off, head off at the pass before they, um, they do too much damage. That was not the case for the fire festival. I'll, I won't ask any more questions related to fire festivals, just that I watched it very recently, but for any of you out there, please, after listening to this conversation, go and watch it because it's a fascinating case study in what we're about to get into. So, but I also want to do the plug. I also want to do the plug. So watch the Facebook, or excuse me, the uh, the Netflix version. But I believe Hulu has also commissioned their own. So there's competing really? fire fest. Yes, there is competing fire festivals documentaries, and they are very much um, sort of left window, right window, looking into this experience that you that was so cringeworthy. It's a different perspective. I so would love that. Yeah, different executive producer with a little bit of a different vantage point. That's so. I mean, that's just interesting on itself. The the vantage point when it relates to storytelling and how different the it's outcome the ultimate can be. storytelling. A documentary. I believe that the documentary is the ultimate story. We're all going to be doing documentaries. No more podcasts, content marketing. We're all just going to do two hour documentaries. Oh, I could go into that seriously. That the amount of companies I'm seeing at the moment employing their own videographer to to basically just document as they go from a storytelling perspective. But let's, let's move through. Let's, let's talk about pattern recognition because the reason I brought up Fire Festival was all the way, all the way through it and, and often in situations there are patterns, there are distinguishable patterns that if you have mastery in an area or you're very experienced in an area, you can, that's part of the benefit of mastery, right? You can see something coming. You, can, you recognize the patterns. You've been there before. You can see the markings on the wall. Talk to me about some of the patterns from your perspective as a crisis communicator, as a reputation management consultant. What are some of the patterns that you see when you when you look at a situation you think this is going to blow? Yeah, um, that's a terrific, terrific question, and I love pattern recognition. And it is it is having done this for twenty five years in some form or fashion, it is kind of the key differentiator between who I think are are good versus great. Uh, uh, from a communication standpoint. So, you know, patterns that I look for, you know, is social media is such an amazing trigger as well as repository of information. You can really tell smoke from fire using social media tools. There's lots of algorithms, lots of tools for social listening and things like that that's there. And so the pattern recognition is critical when someone runs into the chief executive officer's office and says, this is blowing up on Twitter. I have no idea what to do with that information. That's meaningless to me. I don't know what blowing up on Twitter looks like or sounds like, but the pattern recognition is there's something there that I need to go learn about and I need to go understand. When you, The other pattern recognition is when you sit with a senior team and they find themselves in a crisis and you ask a series of questions and it's like peeling an onion and you just slowly trying to get to the truth and get to the bottom of things. That is something that is a telltale sign of a situation that is going to have a long tail on it because it's difficult to get to the truth. 
we should be able to quickly articulate what happened, quickly apologize and quickly move on. But if I'm always sort of learning, well, we, well, we forgot to tell you about this and we forgot to tell you about that, that's a pattern that I've seen all far too often. The other major pattern that I see is a chief executive that in, in, with all best intentions and, and, and actually works out for the best, when a chief executive walks in and says, we made a mistake, we're going to fix it. I'm ready to apologize, even though I don't know what I'm apologizing for. It's, it's, it's a good instinct, and it is a lovely pattern to see when someone has that, that openness and transparency. But you might not just want to act on that cavalierly and just randomly apologize, even though you don't know what you're apologizing for. Um, but the instinct is right. So those are a couple of patterns of things that we see in crisis engagements. And the last one, unfortunately, is a pattern that I see is, is this tension between the general counsel and the legal team and the communications team with communications wanting to use words like authentic transparency and apologize and the legal team using words like litigation risk and millions of dollars. And so there's a lot of tension between general counsels and communicators. It's, that tension, you know, the way that you phrase that, that's really interesting because you have, and we're, we're going to talk about it later, you know, the importance of intent when it comes when it comes to managing a crisis, the importance that your intent is clear or that we believe in your intent. So on that side, you know, that's very, um, that's very non-factual intent. It's more, it's more emotional. And then on the other side, you've got, what are the facts? I have a colleague that I work with and her favorite phrase is, you know, I don't deal in drama, I deal in actuals. And, you know, she wants the facts. Tell me exactly what's happening as it happens. And so you have to live somewhere in the middle there because you're dealing with an emotional situation, but you're also dealing with, with facts as they emerge. How do, you, how do you hold that? I mean, as a C- I know plenty of CEOs who have found themselves in crisis situations. How do you hold that tension? You have to keep the end goal in mind. You got to keep where you're going to wind up in mind. And that, that is that you ultimately, the word story and the word storytelling kind of gets bantied about a great deal. And so even in a crisis, there is room to tell the story. That doesn't mean make up things, lie or be deceitful. But there is a narrative, there is an arc of the way people can onboard and accept information. And if the media is running with a story or running with with a narrative, we have to tell a counter narrative. We have to tell an alternative story to that that is based on fact, based on realities that most people might not be aware of. And so the way I hold that tension between them is that I don't get revealed every bit of information that I need, you know, at one particular moment. It, it, you know, releases itself, but organizations need to be able to sort of tell stories and they need to be able to do it in a truthful and authentic way. And so I'm trying to extract it and package it at the same time. How do I extract it? How do I package it in order to share it? And I try to do it and we try to do it in real time um, with our clients. So I hold it by appreciating that someone more than likely made a mistake that they don't want everyone to find out about, but the organization has been found out and the genie's out of the bottle and they have to tell a story. So it's, I learn about things and then we have to repackage and try to tell the story in as best of light as possible. 
so I, w- I want to just talk about decision making now because before we get to the narrative, before we get to telling the story in a way that your intention and the facts are equally portrayed, we, let's go to the beginnings of when we find out that something's going on or we think something might be going on. Now, you talk a lot about active decision making and I love that word active and that most of us passively engage when there's an issue. What's the, what's the difference, just at a practical level, what's the difference between passively engaging and becoming active in your de- decision-making when you can see something on the horizon that doesn't look pretty? So in a crisis situation, typically the way I sort of, of many definitions, but one of the definitions I use is that your actions are at a cross-section with public expectation. So the public expects something of corporations or expects something of you as an individual. In some regards, they may expect nothing. And what they see is very negative. And so that's then gets reported in media, gets reported in social media um, and becomes a story. A legitimate decision for a corporation is to do nothing. Just to say, well, this is going to blow over and we're not going to react to this. That's passive decision-making as opposed to the active decision-making that says, okay, this just happened. We're not going to put, as I said before, put the genie back in the bottle. We know that we have to respond. And if we're going to respond, we have to say something now, even though we don't have anything to say. So we've worked with a number of clients that are like, we need to spend more time to learn the facts. And then we will tell the story once we know all of the facts. That's, to my mind, passive decision-making. It's, 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 it is not allowing you to be active in the marketplace of ideas and telling your story, even though it's a partial story. It doesn't have the perfect beginning, middle, and end. It's only the beginning. But in true crisis situations where, where things have blown up and people are injured, it's the, the greatest thing that people want to hear is that you are made a decision to fix it. You've acknowledged there's a problem, and then you're going to fix it. And so that's the difference between active decision-making and letting the environment, letting the litigation force your decision, letting employees that are protesting make the decision for you or making some sort of third-party activist group make the decision for you. So it is much more about um, making a decision even when you don't really want to, but you know you have to. Where's the – is there and where is the place in that for – you know, the term I have heard you. I, I just find that that term is one of the most important terms when it comes to dealing with an issue. Even if you don't have the answers, even if you, you don't know what you're going to do next, just to say the words, you know, I've heard you, I'm listening. We've heard you, we're listening, and now we're going to do this. I, I find that if you jump straight into we're going to do this, what can happen is the other party just escalates because they don't feel hurt. They don't feel like you truly understand the severity of what's going on. Is there, that's in my world. In your world, is, is, does that also hold true? Does that need to come first? It does. I, and, and so a shorthand word, a shorthand way to say it is empathy, is to simply have empathy and say, you know, we understand the implications of our behavior or we understand what has happened and who it is impacting and here's what we're doing about it. So, you know, I don't know if if I would advise those four words, I have heard you. I think that's more of an interpersonal conversation. I think at scale and, at, you know, a major corporation, 
to CEO to say that, but to show empathy and show understanding and to appreciate that people have been disrupted, people have been impacted, people have been um, charged more money than they should have been charged, whatever the, whatever the crisis is that's there. Absolutely agree with the sentiment and that notion that underlies I have heard you is critically important, um, but then it has to be followed up in my belief with an action. Just saying, I hear you, I understand you, has value, but since we're moving so fast and we want the best chance we have to try to get ahead is that if we can say that plus some sort of discussion about what we're going to do next. And so we, we've made a mistake. We hear you. We're going to fix it. Let's look at that action. Let's look at the action part of that. So I can 100% feel that, you know, the saying, you know, we are listening without action Means very, means very little. Now, you have said there are three possible actions that most corporations or CEOs take at this point. One is to lean in and do everything we can. The other is to say, look, we've seen this before. It's going to blow over. Just move on. And the other one is to say, let's monitor the situation so we can see where this winds up. Now, you've said that monitoring is absolutely best practice here, which, which actually surprised me and also reminded me of one of some of the early leadership lessons that I learned running a corporation being what I used to do, and I can still feel it as a tendency now, is jump in and do everything we can. I'm just going to put this fire out. I'm going to jump in, give it my full attention. And in watching mentors or other leaders that I admired, they actually did exactly what you advise. They stand back, they stay active, but they stand back and they go, I'm just going to watch and see what happens here. I'm going to keep pay close attention, but I'm not jumping in just yet talk to me about why that's so important and why, because that instinct to jump in and fix would be really strong. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, there's, there's a lot here. And so it, it, we can deal with it at a, at a human level and then a corporate level. So let me take the corporate part first. We're all busy and, and attention is the new currency of this economy that we're in right now. And people, people's attention, the attention span, because everybody's busy and we've got more content than we know what to do with. And so I'm in a crisis situation and it's relatively benign and, and it's not um, uh, a small number of people perhaps are impacted. It's not gotten major mainstream, mainstream coverage if I were all of a sudden to start leaning in and saying, we've heard the impact and we understand the impact that we've made for you and here's what we're going to do. We're going to appoint a blue ribbon commission and we're going to do all of these things. It's like, what are, what are these guys talking about? I didn't even know there was a problem. So why are they now leaning in and doing all of this stuff? So it's, I get the sentiment of let's do what's right in a given situation, but it's almost like thou protestest too much. What you're, you're, you're going too far in that situation. I also think it at a, at a human level, as we have interpersonal relationships with our partners, is people say and do things to us all the time that we might take offense with. Now, some of us are healthy enough that we have like a, a, a split second hair trigger and, and, and positively and we'll say, you know, partner, I would, I would appreciate you not doing that. If you're always, always doing that, that's pretty laborious. There are a couple things. Well, let's sit back and see, is this a trend? Are we seeing more and more and more of this? Or should we call it out every time immediately? Great debate and whether it's the, the relevancy in relationships. I think in corporations is that there's so much noise going on. People don't expect corporations to be overly cathartic and, and 
engage on every particular topic. So I think monitoring, checking and understanding, using the pattern recognition that we talked before, understanding the difference between smoke versus fire is a very, very legitimate, prudent approach um, because we don't have to go run around and saying, oh my gosh, it's blowing up on Twitter and overreacting. That's my caution because there's there you have a little bit of a benefit that there's so much noise, you might not get caught up into it. Usually not the case, but there's a chance if you monitor that maybe this will blow over. And that's that's okay. Do you have any examples of either companies you, you have worked with or companies you haven't worked with that you've just been monitoring on your radar that have done a particularly good job of handling that moment? Do we lean in? Do we lean out? Do we monitor? Is there anything in your world that comes to mind where you think yeah, that they did a great job of that? Sure. Um, and I'll, I'll pick a pretty controversial one that a lot of people can pick sides on, the coal industry. Uh, the United States has significant energies produced from coal coal fire plants, and coal has a, has it, it is invasive to the economy. The stripping out of the coal, we use it to create energy, which does amazing, wonderful things in society. But it also then downrange the the production of it uh, creates environmental impacts. The coal industry is doing a good job of sort of understanding the atmospherics right now. There is a very large vocal minority that thinks that coal fire plants are the worst thing ever and that we should do away with all of them. There's also an, a realistic view that it is a cheap source of energy. There might be alternatives. They might be very, very legitimate alternatives, but they are not cheap and they're incredibly um, difficult to, to move around the marketplace. So the coal industry, understanding that they're at, at, at risk, has done a nice job of monitoring where they are in this situation, responding to specific things that they can fix, but not overreacting and trying to answer every environmentalist claim and every claim that's there because they know fundamentally the product is needed. So that's a an, an example of an industry that has been attacked, could have found themselves in a crisis, decided to monitor and chose their battles, decided to step in or step out as the case may be. We still have coal-fired plants here in the United States. We've also got a lot of solar. We've also got nuclear. We've also doing a lot of sort of innovative, you know, technology with wind. But coal is still the backbone um, of our economy. So that's a that's an example of it. We've had another client recently that was in a it's a healthcare system, and they saw that there was a series of adverse outcomes with a particular drug device, and they were they were doing a lot of um, a, a lot of procedures using this device, and they saw at the end that they were not as, as, as effective as they had hoped that they would be. And so these healthcare company decided, the, the hospital system, decided to watch and watch and watch, and then they said, okay, we got to stop. So they stopped and then reached out to everybody that was impacted by this product, and they kept it very small. They didn't need to apologize to the world. They kept it relatively small. There was some litigation threat that was there, but they had really good systems in place. And, and, and as we worked with them, some of my advice was, we're gonna 
We need to go talk to legislators. We need to go talk to policymakers because this is going to blow up. And the CEO's instinct was, no, let's not do that. Let's just sort of manage each individual patient and each each individual doctor group separately. And that turned out to be the right advice is to, because it did not turn into something significant. There was litigation and, and, and that's sort of long tail stuff. But the issue that at hand is that they monitored. They watched, they reacted in a very focused way without this sort of major broadcasting way, which would have been kind of negative or would have been very negative for the organization. That would be, I'm assuming that would be a, a situation that you that you find yourself in relatively regu- regularly, where you're in a room, something's going on, something's going down, and your advice is contrary to the instincts of the people in the room. Just it just suddenly hit me when you were talking. Then how do you how do you manage that? Awesome question and something I think about a lot. And I'm I'm very fond of this Wayne Dwyer quote um, that's there: is that you can't control you can't always control what goes on the outside, but you can always control what goes on the inside. And so my clients should only have the expectation of me that I give them the best advice that I can based on the experiences that I've had. And when I start making up stuff or trying to guess or predict or, or look into crystal balls, that's when I really begin to f- get scared and fearful. And so what I do to control on the inside is that I've got some experience. I've been doing this for a while. The best that anyone can expect of me is to take that experience package it up and give it in, a, in an easily understood way in a cl- clearly and succinctly. And so for me, it's always reverting back to that safe place that I can't control what goes on around me. I can only control what goes on inside of me. And I just try to be crystal clear with the wisdom that I give. And it's based on the experience that I have. And in some situations to say, I don't know, I don't know how this is going to turn out. This approach would be as good, would be better than our five or six other bad options and just to be very open and honest about it you know you uh, there's so much there's so much in there in there for me around trust you know because you are in a very trusted position when you go into that room you know you're literally going into the room one of the questions I, I had here is you know you are running in when everybody else runs out and someone has to trust you very quickly with everything sometimes that they have built their entire career, um, their ability to feed their, their families, their jobs, their security and getting to, getting to trust one of the most pivotal things I think when it comes to getting someone to trust you or, or building a situation in which they can is to say that is to say, I don't know. Do you know what? I do not, I don't have the answer to that. I will go away, I will find it out, I will find somebody else or based on my experience, this is the best that I can give you. But it's so counterintuitive, right? Because if you want someone to trust you, our first instinct is often to feel like we need to have all the answers in that exact moment. Absolutely. I'm, I am fundamentally, I'm in the wisdom business. I, I sell wisdom and I sell perspective and insight that's there. And if I'm in the wisdom business and I don't have any wisdom, that's a kind of a dangerous position to be. If I was a milkman and I didn't have any milk, that's not a good place to be. And But I've learned to know that the alternative of selling somebody orange juice when they want milk is usually a bad idea. And so I try to be really, really authentic and, and truthful 
um, that we that we don't know. And so we had a client recently that we worked with. It was um, a relatively high profile woman, and she was she ran a salon, and the salon got into some trouble with some issues around race and issues around the way she sort of treated her employees. And I knew what to do and what she needed to do was simply was to apologize and move on. It was, it wasn't particularly complicated, but to your point about building trust is I, what I try to do in the first time I get introduced with a client over the phone or we, we have our first meeting is my first comment is, is Julie, I'm so sorry you're having to go through this, but, but I'm really confident that there's, there's a, a good outcome on the backside. Let's just work together to find that. And so the, one of the first things I say, whether it's, whether they sort of did something egregious or not is to just for me to just say, I'm so sorry you're having to go through this. I know this is the worst day you probably ever had to deal with, but there's hope on the other side. And that's a good, that's a pretty nice way to start a trusting relationship is from that position that I, I do feel for these people that are going through these situations. Yeah, it also sets you up as a partner in it, as opposed to someone with a magic button, which unfortunately in most fields doesn't exist. I know, but you've got so many clients that that's what they wish. They said, well, can you just call the editor of the paper? Just, just call, call the editor or, or I go, I, you know, I'm, I'm friends with this reporter. Can, let's just call him and they'll fix it. And the world is just too, too fast, fast, fast moving. And they're, they're, everybody's a journalist now. So maybe we could put our finger into one, one dike like that, but we can't put our finger into all of those dikes. It's better just to tell, to tell the right story. But you're, you're right. It is. It is a. It's these are these are unfortunate situations. And we, you may have heard in globally this issue called Varsity Blues, where a number of high pro, high profile U.S. families um, cheated the system and got their kids accepted into college. Um, some celebrities here in the United States and some high profile attorneys and things like that. All these folks in, at one level, what they wanted to do was they wanted to help their kids get into college. They cheated. They had people take the SAT exam. They had a mock-up pictures that they were, you know, all-star athletes, um, and they just traded money for acceptance. And it's it's bad. It, I, as a as a father of of a, of a college-age daughter and an emerging college-age daughter, someone else gamed the system, and it sucks. But these people that did this, I have an empathy for them that sometimes gets me in trouble. I have an empathy for them that they're just getting dragged through a horrible, horrible situation. And while I don't condone what they did, I do feel for them as humans that, that this mom and dad misguided way too much money than they, more money than they knew what to do with and a sense of hubris made a horrible set of mistakes. They are, you know, their reputation is significantly impacted and that's 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 I don't like anyone to go through that that's sad for me I want to I want to talk about fear let's go we, we t- we've touched on fear a couple of times and you've said yourself you know that moment where you start to feel some fear come up in you that I don't have this magic button that you're hoping for but what I do have is as you've said pattern recognition what I do have is mastery what I do have is experience what I do have is a set of tools because I've been here before but let's go back to that fear point. You, you told a story that I read and I loved it. You said you were watching a nature documentary with your daughter. And we've all been there. We've all sat there with, a, with if we have children, sat there on the sofa and the lion is creeping up on the gazelles. 
And you have, you wrote, which I just thought was beautiful. You wrote, I started rehearsing the, it's just the circle of life conversation in your head, which again, we've all had that moment. Um, now, one of those gazelles you were saying just froze. The rest ran, one froze. And obviously we all know, we all know what happens next. Talk to me about that moment, that moment. And again, we've been there when you feel yourself freeze, when something happens, all of a sudden you turn into a bunny in the headlights. You can see exactly how this is going to play out. You don't feel like you can stop it and you just feel your blood run cold. In that moment, is there, and I might be massively oversimplifying the situation, is there some kind of pattern interrupt, some kind of mantra, some kind of something to tell yourself in that moment to break that state so you can get into an active decision-making mode? All right. You know, so, uh, so I'll take fear from two perspectives. There's my own perspective and, and the way I sort of provide truth to power. But there's also this notion of uh, relative, particularly recently about the Me Too movement and, and where it's typically men are doing things to women that they shouldn't be doing. And that is causing boards of directors and leadership teams to make very, very difficult decisions about really important people to their organization. And I absolutely don't condone, condone any of that behavior and, and people that, that do those things get what they deserve to a certain extent. But I have seen CEOs that say, that's, yep, I get it. I understand it. We have to let that person go, even if though they are my critical partner and they are their core to the business. I've seen others that, are, that begin this you know, stages of grief. They start negotiating. They say, well, can we put them on unpaid vacate, un, you know, unpaid leave? Can we suspend them temporarily? Can we go assign them to a different department and things like that? That's a moment and that's a notion of freezing. They're freezing. They know a decision has to be made, but they begin this bargaining to try to figure out a way out of it. We've got other CEOs that have particularly founders that have invested and built and stood up an organization from, from infancy to multi-million dollars. And they did something by proxy, someone on their team did it, but they did something that hurt people. And they are like, that is not us. We didn't do that. That's not our fault. But it is very obvious that it is. Leaders freeze in those moments and they don't make what otherwise would have been a remarkably simple, straightforward decision because since they have so much invested in it, it makes it hard. I don't have a mantra to, to help those individuals out of that. I have empathy that says, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, I understand this is hard, but the New York Times is going to call you in 15 minutes and we have to make a decision. We have to, we have to explain what's going on. So I don't have any magic you know, coin that I can hand them to, to, to give that courage. But I have to let them understand that there is a bigger fight. It is the fight for their enterprise, not the fight in this moment. There's a bigger fight that they need to focus on. And so confronting fear, the urgency of the moment is really a, a you know, a pretty, pretty good slap in the face that we need to make a decision. Uh, and need to move forward. And then it's really my responsibility, if I can't do it individually, to rally others that are trusted in the organization. Boards of directors are really, really good at this, to rally boards of directors to say, Mr. and Mrs. CEO, this is what you have to do, and this is when it has to happen. Um, and those are very difficult decisions, um, but the urgency of the situation kind of dictates it. So no magic beans. No magic beans, but as you said, the, the urgency of if we've, we've got to make, there's a wider battle here. 
than the, than the exact moment that you're fighting for. And it's really easy to get caught in those, you're trying to protect this relationship, trying to protect this legacy. But if you can go out onto the, the wider perspective of what you're fighting for, then it makes the decision-making a little bit easier. Not easy, but a little bit easier in the moment. Let's, I, want I think to- Facebook, let me just talk about just quick for a second. Facebook, you know, Zuckerberg and Facebook, after they, after their Cambridge Analytica stuff, you know, it was really obvious to most of the world that they did things they shouldn't have done. It took them a really, really long time to say, we screwed up. He eventually got there and eventually did it. Um, but it's it was a very, very um, painful process to watch them kind of dangle um, for about seven to ten days. Um, and that's all about fear. What is that going to mean to me as the leader? What's it going to mean to my organization? What's it going to mean to my shareholders? So um, I get it. Fear is, fear is a very powerful motivator. I want to talk about the animal kingdom again. I keep going back to animal metaphors. Um Another story that I've heard you tell was about rats. So we're going from gazelles to rats. And that was that there's um, a particular trait that emerges with rats if you shock them enough times in a row. Can you, can you walk through that? Because it's almost the opposite of freezing. So what you see with, with rats is that there's this preconditioning, is that they will, if, if stimulated negatively, with a with an electrical shock or stimulated with some sort of other uh, other other device, they m- become preconditioned that that is okay that that stimuli is an okay stimuli, and so what some organizations have done is that they just take body blow after body blow after body blow because it's okay that we're doing this in that marketplace. The coal industry, for example, the coal industry is sort of preconditioned to sort of have people dislike them. Facebook is not. Facebook and Starbucks and other high profile brands are not preconditioned to do that. So when stimulated negatively, those rats in that experiment sort of become preconditioned and accepting of what every other normal rat would accept as a negative stimuli. I see that in corporations and I see them and I see people failing to act when their reputation is just slowly being chiseled down nick by nick by nick. And it really makes it difficult when the corporation wants to start a new business line, open up in a new state, create a new business venture, it may or find joint venture partners. It makes it really difficult for them to do that. You'd, you'd said that the, the best way through, I was going to say out, but the best way through that situation is with simulation training, which again, I thought was, I thought was fascinating. I, for the podcast, I interviewed a, a Navy SEAL not so long ago. And one of the primary tools that, that he talked about in terms of preparation and mastering fear in the moment was what they called drown proofing, which was basically, you know, they get thrown into a pool, taken to the point of almost drowning again and again and again so that they learn to manage their internal landscape throughout that so that they don't panic. And so there seem to be some similarities there where, you know, the key to making sure that you don't freeze or that you don't get so blasé that you ignore is to have regular points where you just run through the what ifs. What would we do if this happened? What what would our next step be? What would our next step be? Is that is that your guidance? Is have I read that right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, and it's got a mini version and a maxi version is that I think it's the mini version. And, and, and the point is, is that 
plans, and I think your Navy SEAL would concur with this, they have standard operating procedures on what they do. But the, what the drownproofing process does is it, regardless of how they got there, they're ready in, in these different situations. So I do not subscribe to the fact that every corporation should have a plan for every possible permutation of bad thing that could happen. I don't think that's what is, I don't think that's realistic. Nobody ever looks at them and they're a, a huge waste of time. What I think organizations should do is do crisis simulations and, and they can do it in a small version, uh, just a tabletop exercise where everyone sits around the table and says, this just happened to a competitor. What if, what would happen to, if this had happened to us, how would we respond and what would we do? And so we spend two or three hours working with a client to have that conversation, or we can actually do a, a live exercise in a walled garden, a very protected website that we've created that simulates email, simulates social, uh, social media, simulates traditional media where reporters are calling. And it creates this level of intensity where much like the Navy SEALs is that they get to experience this so that when it happens, people don't freeze and people know how to how to react. And it also at a practical level, organizations understand what to do next, because that's the first thing that goes. They usually get the first step right. People traditionally get out a holding statement. They say something. It's what do you do next? How do you continue to survive in these moments. And so I think crisis simulations um, are critical. And it doesn't even, you don't even have to hire a consultant or hire a team to do them. Leaders can simply sit with any, take any front page of the Wall Street Journal or New York Times or you pick it and just look at the front page and say, look what just happened to that company. If that had happened to us, what would we do? And just take 10 minutes at your staff meeting and just talk about it. And, and that is a mini, mini crisis simulation. And that then just makes organizations so much more risk aware. And you'll get to learn your culture of your organization a lot quicker. And then you also get to learn about chain of command. You know, I can't, for anyone listening, I can't emphasize enough, I think, the importance of that advice. You know, if I look back at any, as someone running an organization, if I look back at any crisis we've ever been through, if I look back at anything we've handled poorly, um, or I personally have handled poorly, I think that having just at the end of every weekly or monthly meeting, coming up with a situation that could go wrong and having a discussion about how we would handle that as a team probably would have mitigated the worst moments. And what's striking me now is, you know, you know that instinctively as a parent. You know, you, you sit down with your, with your children and you say, okay, what if this happens? What would you say? And if you found yourself in this situation, what would you do? What might you do next? But we, you know... As leaders, we don't tend to we don't tend to apply that, and it's a simple practice, but I would say a pivotal practice to get into the habit of. Yeah, it, and you know, leaders want to be. We're told in great leadership schools that we want to be inspirational and forward looking and drive to success. And yes, we do want to do all of those things, but it's okay to pause and reflect thoughtfully, just like moms and dads pause and reflect. It's okay to do that. And it's not overly woo-woo. It's really just smart, prudent practice to say, 10 minutes, what if this had happened? How would we respond? It's beautiful and, it's, and it works. It makes people better. It makes organizations better. Well, as you said, you know, as leaders in anything that you do, you know, you're in the wisdom business. So the more you can do to cultivate wisdom, the better leader, the better leader you're going to be. 
I want to, my brain's going to a different place now. We've talked about freezing and how fatal that can be. We've also talked about ignoring. I want to talk about the opposite. I want to talk about speed. And you said before that speed is only possible when you have um, two elements in place, one being reputation and the other being trust. Talk to me about how how that relates to speed. Why why does that help you move at speed when it comes to crisis situations? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I've, I've got two thoughts on speed, and I think there's there's one is the speed of micro decisions and speed of micro decisions, you know, come in this notion of, of, as we're sitting as a leadership team, do you trust your leadership team and do they have the reputation, the track record of being right? That makes us faster. So that's sort of this notion of, of quick speed to make rapid decisions. I think in a crisis context, the recipe is a little bit different. It sort of builds off of that. In a crisis context, the recipe is a little bit different. The key differentiator between good versus great crisis response is speed. Speed is made up of two components. Speed is made up of understanding and truly believing your mission and your values. And you add in the equation, you add your mission and values to your chain of command. So mission and values plus chain of command equals speed. Because it's my experience that when corporations find themselves in crisis situations, and the role that I play is to remind them of, of both their mission and values and to accelerate their chain of command is that the companies that know what they stand for, know what they believe in, they make better decisions and then, than those that don't. And organizations that understand the formal and informal way decisions get made within their organization, that's chain of command. Those are the organizations that get crisis response right and fast. Those that are slow is that they have subjective stakeholder-based mission and values, and they're trying to do the calculus of who's this impacting and how fast do I need to get to this stakeholder group, and that the chain of command is sometimes the attorneys are involved, sometimes the board's involved, sometimes the head of operations or someone running a factory or running a store is involved, and it just bogs everything down. And so this notion of speed equals mission and values plus chain of command, that to me, if, if people can then spend a little bit of time, like we just talked about, talking about crisis situations, you'll learn so much about do we know who we are and do we know who needs to be in the room to make decisions faster than any, anything else. S- Stephen Covey, I know that you know, you, you're a big fan of his, and he wrote in the, in the suite of trust, he wrote about there being two key elements when it comes to trust. Because as you've said, you know, trust, if we trust an organization, if we trust a person, we are far, far more likely to give benefit of the doubt. It's going to take longer for us to come to judgment. So when you hit a crisis, you hope that you're sat on a foundation of trust. The two, the two elements that, that Covey mentions, one's character and the other one's capability. Now, I'm going to leave capability alone for a second. Um, because you know we hope that you are capable. That's if you're not, that's that's another another conversation. I wanted to just look at character. The two the two key elements of character being, according to Covey, intent and integrity. Just wanted to talk, hone in on the word intent. How I have found that somebody with a very clear intention, who states their intention very clearly tends to be far more trusted than somebody that doesn't and forgiven far easier. Is there a strategic way 
to use intent or to be active with your intent when it comes to a crisis situation? Yeah, so I, I think I, I love the Covey stuff and, and that speed of trust. And, and it's this notion, but when, when it goes further down, one one or two levels deeper is that what intent is made up of caring, transparency, and openness, is that absolutely you can build a culture that is one of transparency. It is one of we simply are going to tell the truth, and when we make a mistake, we are going to fix it, and we're going to do it. As, as, as quickly as possible, we're not perfect. And so that's okay. And organizations that get that right and provide this sort of caring environment that, that look like an organization that cares, Starbucks, general perception of Starbucks in the United States is that when they make a mistake, they have an intent to do what is right for their customers and right for their employees. But when they make a mistake, they're really open and honest about it and say, we screwed this one up and we're trying to move forward. And that just makes people believe that their character, different than the competence of their, the taste of their coffee, but their character is good because they, they use intent strategically to their strategic advantage. And that's just not the way it was done in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, even in the 90s. It's not really done that way. You don't want to be overly, you know, overly cathartic. But I think now the modern corporation is absolutely based on this concept of caring, transparency, and openness, because that's what the customer, millennials, this emerging generation of purchasers, that's what they expect. That's what they want from their customers. So yes, it can absolutely be a strategic advantage. It's hard because you can look silly doing it, but if it's done in a thoughtful way, it's absolutely appropriate. Again, I might be oversimplifying. Is there any language that's useful when it comes to conveying intent in a, in a crisis moment? It's a really terrific question. Without action, it's just words. And so if there has not been a reputational perception, people don't believe that inherent, in, intuitively about the character of the organization, no, there are no words that can make people think we're not evil. OK, even even companies that Google, for example, that has the mantra of, you know, do no evil. There are plenty of people that think Google does evil things that does does bad things. So, no, I don't believe that there is magic words. I think there are actions and then words that reinforce the authentic, caring, transparent and open actions that an organization does. But I don't think it works simply at a word level, it has to be backed up by authenticity and something real behind the organization. Let's, let's flip over to, to language that, that I have heard you use about crisis EQ, which I just thought was really useful language. Like, do we have, do we have crisis EQ in this organization? Because it's naive to think that we're not going to hit a crisis, that we're not going to have moments where, Something happens that we're not going to have to deal with at speed. Now, you you have talked about crisis EQ in relation to a decision-making model by Dr. Shannon Bowen. And her, her model, for anybody that's interested, is called a practical model for ethical decision-making in issues management and public relations. There are two parts of that model. We don't have time to go into all of it today, but there are two parts. It's a four-part model. There's two that I wanted to go into. The first one was categorical imperative and the definition of that being is what we are proposing applicable universally and would we accept the solution if it were applied to us 
And I was thinking about it and, you know, often the answer is no. You know, I wouldn't be happy with, with this situation if I was in it. I wouldn't be happy with this outcome, but it's still the most equitable outcome given the situation. How do you handle those moments when the, the answer to the question is, no, I wouldn't be happy with this outcome. However, it's the best that I'm able to give. Yeah, well, it's 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 it is tough, and 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 you know Bowen's work is based on kind of Kantian ethics, and so we can go deep into Kantian ethics and put people to sleep. Um, uh, and Kantian's philosophies of that, you know, it is it is it's really challenging, and very few corporations kind of get it right um, when they do this. And so her research is really, really powerful from a, from a theoretical standpoint. Um, and there's a flow chart and a model that's there, but, but organizations that at least use that model and her model and then a Kantian model to get to the water's edge of decision-making, it might not impact it, it, it might not be the final decision that we need to view it in this way, but it at least forces the organization to think about the implication of others, not just the implica- implication on themselves, their shareholders, and their key stakeholders. Those are really healthy organizations um, that get there in order to, to, to sort of protect the dignity, dignity and the respect um, of, the, of, the, of what they're doing. I think we're in an age of really enlightened corporations that really get this. We just saw the business roundtable talk about this, of what is the ultimate purpose of the organization? Is it shareholder value or is it societal impact? And that's a big shift for corporations to make that transition um, from that mindset of it's all about the shareholder or it's all about the impact on society. So I think the way that organizations should use her model and, and use Kantian ethics as a model there is that they sort of can use this to sort of communicate in a very ethical and moral way. But I don't think it shapes the words. The words have to be directly authentic to what the organization does. So I use it really, the, the model she talks about, I really use it as a means for people to think about decision making and the implications of the decisions on not just themselves, but everybody that they serve. And that's a new concept for a lot of corporations. It is. It's a. It's very much a new age of transparency. Yeah, a, a really exciting. And with any new age, it comes with with all of us from the top to the very top to the very bottom, almost scrambling a little to, to figure out how to how to do this in a way that navigates it well for everybody to the best best outcome for everybody you are responsible for directly and indirectly. Um, the other one that I wanted to go into of the four was symmetrical communication. The definition of that being are our decisions based on two-way conversation. And it, it got me thinking of the, of somebody who's in my network. They are, they're a CEO and they've had some issues recently with, with key stakeholders. And we were having coffee and, and they were saying, you know, the hardest thing about dealing with this situation is firstly getting everyone to the table. People just, they don't want to come to the table. They're they're disgruntled, they're unhappy, they're not willing to come to the table. And when they do come to the table, I feel like I walk into the room and it's almost a firing squad. You know, it's it's set up already to be very combative and I feel like there's very little I can say that that cuts that atmosphere to get to some kind of rational, two-way, win-win outcome. That's a very big question, I know, but... 
any advice to someone walking into a room like that? Firstly, A, how to get them in the room and B, once they're in the room, any way to frame the conversation so it's going to be as valuable, effective and non-combative as possible? So it goes back to something we talked about earlier. It goes back to this notion of having a a, a true intent of listening. I've heard you. Is that that it is is that for when corporations and, and let me make a quick distinction. Typically, in a crisis situation, this sort of existential event, moment in time, a, a natural disaster, a plane crash, a major malfeasance at a corporation that's impacting shareholder value. There's that. And then there are these critical moments that are long burn where we've got this a lot of stakeholders involved. It's in those types of activities where symmetrical communication is really, really valuable sort of situations. It's a it's a lingering problem. that has been a lingering problem for a long time. Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and the usage of, of other people's data that's there. And so having a listening heart and being able to be open to say, have I have I have I heard you and you're not just playing lip surf to lip service to it and just asking for their input, but you're using their input to shape your behavior moving forward. And then you get a, a bonus. A, you get pretty good insights directly related to people you care about, but you then get third party validation from those that you solicit the input from once you start making change. And so we had a client, uh, environmental, legacy environmental issues, not a major spill, but just some ground um, groundwater issues that had been happened over about 50 years. And it was impacting and created a cancer cluster in a particular community. The new CEO, wonderful position to be in, he really went on a very, very sincere listening tour because we did not know what to do next. We didn't know what was there, but we learned from the community and they said, we need drinking water. And we need to make sure that we've got testing for our kids is that those were two really important things. And then we delivered on those. Not as easy as you think it would be to give drinking water and testing and, and they're expensive. But once we did that in the ultimate litigation that was coming forward is that the community was able to say that was the company that sold it 40 years ago, five different owners ago. But these guys today are really doing the right thing. And, and it was really difficult for Aaron Brockovich from movie fame and her law firm to recruit clients. They didn't, it was difficult to do that. So we got the added benefit of doing what the community needed because we asked, but we also got the benefit of having third party stakeholders, allies, advocates, people saying good things that mitigated the litigation risk that we had um, over the, in the coming years. So I love symmetrical communication. You don't always have the luxury to do it because it takes time and is difficult. But where you can, it has a very, very two for, you know, double bonus um, impact. I want to I talk about saying sorry at, at this point because, you know, we've we've talked about how to get unstuck at the beginning, either from freezing or ignoring. You know, we've talked about um, how to handle how to handle it in the moment going forwards. But then you just, you hit this point where you need to say sorry. And, you know, I've read that you say, if an apology is required, make it. And it sounds so simple, right? Like it, it sounds so simple. It's such a small word. But if you look at it on a corporate level, you look at it on a relationship level, you look at it on a team level, you look at it on a national level, it's the hardest word to say, and sometimes it can create situations that are not undone for decades, if ever at all. 
so firstly, why do you believe in all your years of experience? Why is, why is that word so hard, rightly and wrongly? And then if we're going to say it, what's a way to say it that keeps everybody safe? Mm-hmm. Does that even exist? Yeah. Uh, it, it depends upon the stimuli. It depends upon the input on the front end. Um, sorry is the most difficult word. Saying I'm sorry, I think that's the song lyric, um, is because it's just really, it's really raw, and you're just opening yourself up for criticism and blame and accusation. And so that's why it's difficult. And 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 there's a legitimate fear that is driven by typically the legal department within major corporations that says, well, we say sorry, it's inevitable that we're going to get sued and you're going to be deposed about what exactly are you sorry for and when did you know about it? We're seeing a lot of research and a lot of litigation is that saying you're sorry, it is inevitable in a crisis situation that somebody's going to sue somebody. You know, you're going to go to court. We're a very litigious society in the United States and it's just a reality that somebody's going to get sued. I've talked to litigators and talked to, to um, you know, plaintiff's attorneys is that they would much rather or they would much rather not have a corporation say they're sorry because they can just stick it to them. But if in front of a jury, if the CEO can say, we apologized, we made an error and here's what we did to fix it, it, it does mitigate the impact both in litigation and in public opinion uh, that people have. Uh, that's there. It's difficult because it exposes you to the unknown. It exposes you to, I'm sorry. I'm sp- and the, the way you need to say it from a messaging standpoint, specifically what you're sorry for. You need to answer and say specifically the action that caused the harm that you need to apologize for. The, the challenge is, is that as we all in you know 2020 or the age that we're in right now, 2019, is that everybody thinks that apology is the primary strategy. Sometimes it's not the primary strategy. You know, sometimes people misunderstood. And so instead of saying, I'm sorry, is that you can have empathy and say, I'm sorry that you misunderstood, but let me try to explain a little bit better as opposed to, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll do it better. I'll do something different next time. Nobody wants that in a relationship. We want truth. And the truth is I made this decision. We did this decision for a reason. I'm sorry you misunderstood. I'm let me try to explain it to you. If you truly did something, apologize for it, fix it and move on as quickly as you can. Um, and, and, but that's, it's hard for organizations to do. Um, litigation is, is one of the main reasons to do it. The other reason is that, um, you know, these are high powered people that have been very, very successful and rarely make mistakes and saying you're sorry admits you made, made a mistake. The other thing that, that can happen is, you know, there's, there's the choice to apologize or not to apologize and that often companies, individuals, so this goes from a relationship all the way up to a national level, gets stuck in some mid-ground there, which is the non-apology. Um, so, you know, walk me through your definition. I mean, I know, we all know it when we've heard it, and when, you, when we hear you explain it, we're, we're going to go, aha, uh-huh, yeah, I hear that a lot. What, what is a non-apology? Yeah, so it's anything, the, the, the code word, the pattern recognition is ifs and buts. If the sentence and the response has something that has an if, an if or a but. Um, and so, you know, we're sorry if anyone might have found offense to these comments. 
Um, and, and so if, and, and the, the, the case that I sort of wrote about is that, you know, someone gets caught on tape saying something offensive, you know, offensiveness is un, unfortunately in the eye of the beholder. Some things are offensive to other people. Some things aren't. And so saying an apology that says, you know, we're sorry if anyone might have been offended by these concepts, you know, that's not really authentic and, and, and only serves one constituency. It only serves the interest of those that are making that, that apology. And you're also, uh, the, you're, you're deferring responsibility. You're saying, you know, we said it, we meant it. It's your responsibility if you took it that way. Exactly. Exactly. And that's just, if you're going to do it, you got to do it. You got to do it really clearly and own it. Um, and that's where, and that's where it's, it's also, it's blame shifting and you're transferring it off to somebody else. Um, it's, it's, it's not really my problem. It's really your problem is kind of the code word that's there. Um, and there's this, there's so much symmetry between human interpersonal dynamics between a, a part between partners and the way corporations sort of interact with their stakeholders is nobody wants to say that nobody wants to hear that is that I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if you found offense at that. It was offensive, and let's acknowledge that it was offensive, and then we can go on to try to re- rehabilitate and, and improve the relationship. But these ifs and buts cause a lot of, lot, of, lot of problems for organizations. So avoid any apology that involves an if or a but in there somewhere. It's, it's, it's typical. I've, you know, I've, I've had a very thoughtful counselor that I've worked with that we should just simply take but out of our vocabulary all the time. There's really no room for but anywhere in our vocabulary. Um, and, 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 but lawyers love it. It's a great legal word. It's a wonderful legal word. And it says, and as you know, as a, as a communicator who is gifted with words, we sometimes like a little hedge every now and then. Um, and but's a wonderful hedge. Yeah. I say gifted with words. I actually had a conversation with my husband this morning where, um, we had a, we had a disagreement and I did exactly that. I did, I did an apology with it, with a caveat at the end. I did this. I know. I know that it upset you. However, but which is just a fancy, a a fancy way of saying but, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, we're coming. We're coming to the end now. There's there's one more question that I that I wanted to talk about, and I think the most valuable question to finish with is you know you've you've mentioned it before in this conversation, and it's the term speaking truth to power. And the courage that it takes to to say something to somebody that you know you perceive to be or actually is in a more powerful situation than you, that you either think something is wrong, something is going to be wrong, something is happening, or you know behavior is unacceptable. I've seen it. You know, we talked about the fire festival and how diff, you know many people tried and unsuccessfully to speak truth to power about what was happening. Um, I I don't know if you you're familiar with Theranos and that. The situation of there, course. yeah, of course. For those of you who aren't, again, an amazing case study. If you're going to do this um, drown proofing or prepping for situations, check out Theranos um, whistleblower Tyler Schultz and CEO Elizabeth Holmes and what happened there. There's actually a Netflix documentary about it now. It's a Netflix mm-hmm. documentary on everything. Mm-hmm. Any advice? Any advice to somebody who's just sat on that verge, who at any level is sat on the verge of thinking, I know something isn't right here and people deserve to know and I I don't know if or how to come out with that or um, I can see something coming and it's not pretty and I don't want to be the one 
that brings it to everybody's attention. I don't want to be associated with it, but somehow in my gut, I feel like I have a responsibility. Any yeah. advice to those? How do we speak truth to power in a way that is um, powerful, make sure we're heard and has the impact that we want? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's less, so I'll take it from the context of a counselor or an advisor to a CEO or to a leadership team to make a difficult decision. I, I think that it's a different type of truth to power by a whistleblower. I think a whistleblower takes a different, a little bit of a different perspective on it. But, but I think if we are counselors and many of us are advisors to leadership teams or, or we are leaders that expect good advice back from us, you know, I think there's, there's a handful of things uh, on, on the way that we sort of need to do that. It begins with something I said earlier. It begins with all that I can do is give the best perspective that I have based on my experience and my insight. And we can't fake it. I've been in, in, in politics. It is populated with people that are way out over their ski tips, offering opinions about things they have no idea what they're talking about because they made it up. And that is horrible. That is not truth to power. That is your fantasy to power or your hopefulness to power. And so I think being true is that here is my truth, my knowledge, my understanding, my insight, and I'm going to share that as clearly and as articulately as I can. I'm not going to use a PowerPoint and I'm not going to be really jargon filled. I'm just going to speak truth about what I think this situation is. is. I think communicators can additionally do that is you got to stick to your guns is you, is that if someone challenges you and says, no, 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 that's absolutely not right. You need to be able to say, no, it is. I've seen this before. This is how this happens. I read about this. We talked about this as a team that's there. And then it's really, really important for organizations to, or for, excuse me, for counselors to be consistent and to own it and be true and repeat it over and over again. And not to the point of being, you know, what's, if it's been digested by the organization and rejected, repeating it over and over again is kind of foolish. But if it's difficult to hear, it's okay to repeat it over, over and over again and to give that advice. The other, like I said, I mentioned quickly, the other tongue in cheek is don't put it on a PowerPoint. It doesn't need to be written in a memo. These difficult conversations, and there's a great book, Crucial Conversations, you need to do it face to face and you need to do it with, with a person that's right there in front of you. Just on a practical level, writing it down, making sure that it's, that it's somehow in written and traceable form, is that a good idea? Um, you know, uh, my, my litigation paranoia goes up is that I don't like everything written down cause then it can be discovered. Um, but I think if, if, if speaking your truth is a challenge for you, I think writing it down to help sort of bolster yourself, uh, there's nothing really wrong with, with doing that. Um, I don't really believe, I think there is a lot of, um, risk in doing things like that in memo forms, quite frankly. Um, because you're asking someone to make a decision, which means there's going to be a winner and a loser. Um, and that is leaves you, leaves you open to criticism. So I, I probably prefer not to write things like that down. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish off with, with the last question that, again, I, I, usually, I usually ask. And, and that's if I, could give you, if I could give you a stage and I could give you a microphone, not an unusual situation for you, I know. If I could put in front of you everybody that in the course of your career you would like to influence, and I gave you five minutes, what's the, what's the one thing that you would want them to know? 
That's terrific. Terrific. Um, I have five minutes on this one. <laughs> I can I can change it to thirty seconds if you if it's easier. <laughs> uh, you know, it's great. Is is that it's 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 a handful of things, quite frankly, and so I think it is. Crises don't have to be inevitable. Your organization does not have to be defined by your worst day. And there's a handful of things you can do. You can simply get ready. You can practice and train and think and, and quiz your team. So be prepared. Just because it's bad doesn't mean that it can't happen. And so be prepared. The other thing is to understand risk and understand the way risks can impact you and impact your organization. So two very practical, tactical things. Get ready, prepare for crises, understand the risks that can impact your organization. After that, it is all about to tell your truth, is that organizations get into so much trouble when they lie and 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 make things up to make them look better when a simple apology is most appropriate and certainly most durable um, to get them through this. The other thing is to understand we control our brand. Companies can control their brand. We can spend lots of money impacting and impacting the brands that we have. But it's the public that owns your reputation. So you understand your customers, understand your key stakeholders. But if you really want to grow your reputation is that it's really understanding what the public actually perceives about you and understand that in a similar way that you understand how you actually behave to your uh, actually be- behave to your core consumer. So tell the truth, understand that you can control your brand, but it's the public that owns your reputation and do some preparation in advance because you do not have to be defined by your worst day. And that's good news for all of us, I think. Um, And just to speak to that last point, you know, the same applies from a a one-on-one individual level. You know, there's that, there's that phrase that, you know, what, what you intended to say or what you said almost doesn't matter. It's what the other person heard that matters you know the other person owns the outcome of the communication not what your intent was um thank you thank you for for taking the time on a gray new york day to to talk with us about something that's i think is as transparency grows as the need for trust grows as the need for speed increases you know how we respond on our worst day becomes more and more pivotal and you have extreme mastery in that space so thank you for sharing it with us well, thank you for what you do. I think the the sharing that you do of so many different perspectives and, and as people try to figure out, you know, their own influence and the influence of others. So uh, it's been an honor to do it. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, For those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. 
It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.